Welcome to Distributing Solar. We speak with entrepreneurs and experts working in the off-grid solar industry around the world, bringing to life how distributed solar is changing lives in emerging markets. In this conversation, we speak with Maya Stewart, co-founder of Yellow Solar Power, a pay-as-you-go solar energy company based in Malawi. Malawi has one of the lowest GDP per capita and electrification rates in the world, with only 10-11% to 11% of the country having access to electricity. In September 2020, they raised over $3 million in equity fundraising, and in the past three years, Yellow has enabled over 30,000 rural African households gain access to electricity through solar home systems. We speak about how they've grown their business in Malawi with a digital-first approach, their plans to expand to other countries, and how the lack of energy access disproportionately affects women. We hope you enjoy this episode. Maya, welcome to Distributing Solar. You're a founder of Yellow Solar Power, which is described as a digital-first solar distribution company in Malawi, but you have a background also in clean cooking and sustainability. Can you start by giving us an overview about your background, about how you started working within the energy sector? Thank you, Eugene. My basic background right now is marketing. You'd say that I'm a marketer by profession. I've been doing a lot of different businesses across the board, and I've been involved in the clean energy sector since 2008 in Malawi. My background at that particular time was strictly on improved cookstoves. I had no idea about different uh, technologies above and beyond improved cookstoves. I was working for a specific company called Hestian. We were promoting different technologies in Malawi. So I only started and only knew about solar technologies from 2016. And at that point, we were predominantly focusing on lighting-only products in Malawi. In 2016, Malawi was predominantly reliant on kerosene and battery torches as their primary source of lighting in rural households. Now, 90% of Malawians have zero access to electricity, which means more than 4 million households are non-electrified. And majority of those were reliant on the candles, battery torches, kerosene. And these products are not necessarily clean. They're quite high in terms of consumables. And being a marketer, my task at that particular point was to try and educate households on the different products that are there as alternatives where they can end up saving money. From 2016 to 2017, we realized that there was a big shift in demand after our excellent marketing campaigns. A lot of households now started gaining confidence in the products. And after experiencing their first lighting-only technology, we could see that the general trend was moving towards the lighting and phone charging as well, because households had realized how good the quality of the, the different brands that are available at that time. And they wanted to experience more. And they kept asking, do you have bigger units than the lighting and phone charging technology? And that's when we started asking private sector to bring in different products that had more than one light. These were predominantly the solar home systems. Unfortunately, most of the private sector at that point didn't have access to pay-as-you-go options like from neighboring countries, for example, Tanzania or Kenya. Therefore, households were basically given the option of buying the product in cash. Right. So this is all pre-yellow solar power days? All this is pre. So I'm getting to you. <laughs> Great. Now, what happened after that, myself as an individual went around and started contacting the different companies in East Africa that were already established. So companies such as Off-Grid Electric, MCOPA, and basically trying to entice them that there is an opportunity to come and invest in Malawi. The only company that did respond was Off-Grid Electric at that time, where we had a very long call with the CEO. And unfortunately, he did not find Malawi as an interesting country to invest in. And why was that? Was that because they thought the market wasn't large enough or there were other opportunities they wanted to go after instead? The biggest issue at that point was there was no confidence that households could be able to afford the technologies. Malawi is considered one of the poorest countries in the world. So by definition, that is quite unattractive for foreign direct investment, especially where it requires a lot of money being held up in loans or if you want to call it as receivables. 
So this is something that people were not necessarily attracted to. Now, it's only after that, getting discouraged, but seeing a big, massive opportunity that Yellow then got set up. I mean, the idea was to basically take advantage of an opportunity that was already there, a population that's ready to pay, but they're just not being serviced because of their current status of the country. So it was a risk that we took. And the idea was to try and service the you know, the population. And it's massive. I mean, 4 million households is quite a big number. And all we need is just, you know, a small portion of that. And we'll be able to get our returns significantly back. And at the same time, you're also creating change in a country where everybody else outside thinks is not a viable investment area. And what were the innovations that you needed to introduce? Were there any innovations that you needed to introduce So there is nothing brand new to what we're doing. Everything has been done in other countries. We have different companies that offer the platform for any company that wants to do pay-as-you-go. And we basically subscribed to one of these companies. And, you know, most of the products that are also being produced right now that are Lighting Africa approved for pay-as-you-go are all connected or have the platform to be able to be connected to any of these pay-as-you-go platforms. So it wasn't something that we needed to create from scratch. We basically just did what any other company would have done in any other country. In terms of mobile money, mobile money is available in Malawi. We have two companies currently offering mobile money. So the reach is extensive. Majority of mobile money that is also available is for remittance. So we do find that most households have access to mobile money, but are expecting money to be sent from maybe a relative in the urban centers back into the rural areas, or sometimes even money coming from outside the country to different households in rural areas of Malawi. All that is done using a mobile platform. So these options are already there. So we didn't have to create anything or wait for the industry to shift all these platforms were already there. It was a matter of somebody taking the initiative to kickstart the, the actual business. So it sounds as though the primary requirement from your side was to raise the financing so that you could buy the stock and the assets into Malawi and then you could sell them onto your customers. Precisely. So we initially started, it was what we call bootstrap. Right. <laughs> we invested our own money. And truth be told, we did not put a lot of money into big investments like assets or offices or investing in big number of employees. We put most of our investment right where the product is supposed to be. So most of the investment ended up being in the product itself. So we wanted a product that was differentiated from what was already available in the market. And as, at the same time, we, we put most of our investment in local community agents who would be the guys who are literally taking the product to the households that need them. So we set up our agent network first before we even set up our own office. We had agents in the field before we had an official office. I think we only had our first office end of 2018, I believe. So you're leading the way and working from home. Yeah, exactly. So even right now with this situation of uh, COVID, we're like, well, we're just going back to what we used to yeah. do best. <laughs> Perfect. And so I'd love to speak more about that distribution and the agents you have. Can you tell us more about your distribution model and distribution network, how that works and what are the innovations on that side? In terms of our agent network, again, it was basically based on the fact that when we started the model, we wanted to make it as cost effective as possible. Bearing in mind that we had very little money to spare to invest in hiring trucks or even buying our own vehicle and doing distribution, we decided let's empower the agent, let them be the guys who are on the ground and moving about looking for customers. So we did ensure that most of our agents were empowered at least with information. The most that we invested on was marketing materials. So for example, flyers, which they could basically use when they go out and try to promote themselves. But most of all was branding. So branding also creates a very big impact in rural areas of Malawi. And word of mouth, luckily, is the biggest communication tool that we could have uh, maximized upon. And it was a matter of just training the agent. So we invested heavily on the training of the actual agent. They needed to know the product inside and out, such that if anybody asked any question, they were ready with an answer that could instill confidence in them to now go ahead and make the first purchase. So the agents were trained on how the product works. 
and not just trained by ourselves, but the actual uh, suppliers would go out of their way and offer training material as well. Now, after that, the next thing was investing in their own transport model. What we wanted to make sure is that each agent is not necessarily focusing so much on traveling long distances from where they're predominantly based. So we've given each and every agent a maximum radius that they should work around, which shouldn't exceed more than 10 kilometers. And we're thinking in that level where if somebody has a motorbike or has a bicycle, they can basically cycle to support a customer. The agent should not go outside their 10 kilometer radius to support someone because it will be expensive on their part, which will result in an expense to us. So we wanted them to be as efficient as possible make sure they target areas that are of high density. Now, we are lucky in Malawi, we've got a very high density population. So they were able to meet a big number of customers in a very small area. On average, each agent, I would say, would be able to support up to 500 households, and that's within a five-kilometer radius. Do the agents maintain the relationship? It sounds like they have an ongoing relationship with the customer. For sure. So it's also for ongoing payment collection or is it primarily to service and to support if there are any issues that happen? It's both. So we are working with pay-as-you-go, which means that the customer must be paying for as long as the loan period is consent. Now we give the, the customer the option. They can choose to do up to 24 months, but what we try to encourage them is to pay up faster the faster they pay, then they also have the capacity to now move on to maybe buying bigger products, for example, like a television set. And therefore, the agents are responsible for marketing this option to the, the customer. So we, we don't want the customer to think that they've got the product in their house and then that's it. We've forgotten about them. We want to make sure that without fail, we continue following up on them. If they have defaulted on a payment, we want to make sure we know why they've defaulted because it could be a simple issue of... Maybe they're failing to send the money using mobile money, or maybe they're not in the country. We've had situations where customers had actually left and they traveled to another district and they were not able to pay for their solar unit. It's up to the agent to follow up on their customer. So whoever he or she as an agent sets up uh, as a customer, they will be their customer until the day they finish paying for their product. This also helps with the support of after-sales service. So if we've got a customer complaining that one light bulb is not working or maybe a rat came and chewed the, the line towards the control panel, the agent has to go and make sure that they fix it. So these are things that are ongoing. It will not stop. And only after the 24 months is when they can say their farewell, so to speak. So we try and motivate the agents to make sure that they have that one-on-one -on -one relationship with their customers. They know all their customers and they must follow up with all their customers. They also have access to the customer's information. Like, for example, if I've got a portfolio of 100 customers, I will know who hasn't paid and who hasn't paid any given time through accessing their customer database. You've mentioned on your website that there's a strong focus on the digital side of the technology. Can you speak a bit more about that and, and how that has worked within the company? Sure. In terms of being what we call a digital retail company, we've, we've done this on purpose. We've got a team that's based in South Africa. Our CEO, Mike, is based in South Africa. And we've also got the, the team that works on the back end. All that is done in the South Africa office. Now, in order for them to be able to work with our team in Malawi, we had to go digital, whether we liked it or not. So we needed to make sure that everybody is online. So when we say online, all our agents must be online. We use very simple platforms to communicate with each other on a daily basis. We've got access to WhatsApp. Everybody knows how to use WhatsApp. The good thing in Malawi is that we also have what we call bundles. So it's not expensive to have access to a WhatsApp chat where you could have no access to internet at all, but your WhatsApp will always be working. It's basically day and night. We're constantly chatting. We've got access to all the agents that are spread across uh, Malawi right now. And they've got direct access to the CEO. So if somebody wants to make noise about something that they're not happy with, for example, maybe they don't like a certain product or they're not happy with how a certain tool is being used in our digital platform. So we pride ourselves by being digital, but at the same time, we want to be digital because it's the way the world is moving. 
In terms of digital information, uh, everything is done digitally. So the, the process of application, for example, if an agent wants to sign up a customer, it's done on a digital platform. Everything is basically connected, whether they like it or not. Even the process of application, they basically would sit with 10 or 15 different customers who've applied, but some may get rejected. It's all done digitally. So I, I pride myself in being part of a company that is 100% digital. And it would be great to hear a bit more about the progress that the company has made within the last few years. You're a relatively new company. I think you set up Yellow Solar Power in 2018, but you've made tremendous progress since then. So if you could tell us a bit about the number of households you've reached, the number of employees you currently have, that would be great to get a better understanding of where you are as a company now. Well, when we started in 2018, we had our projection plans and I can tell you we did not expect to be where we are right now, but it's been through a lot of sweat, uh, a few tears here and there <laughs> and predominantly hard work and lots of sleepless nights for a lot of the members of staff. When we started off, we anticipated selling about 500 solar products by end of 2018. But those solar products sold out within a month. And that was in the month of July. And that's when we realized, okay, I think we're onto something right now. So right. we really need to work very, very hard and make sure that we can meet our demand. But products are not something that you can just quickly buy upfront, especially if you're selling your unit on pay as you go. So we had to do a lot of fundraising to make sure that we get the number of products that we needed to meet our current demand. And fast forwarding to today, I mean, the numbers have been growing. Last year was a very nice gradual growth projection. I think by the end of 2019, we must have sold about 10,000 units, if I'm not wrong. But as of two days ago, we hit 20,000. And that means we are right on track in terms of our 2020 goal, which is to reach 50,000 households by the end of the year. Wow. So we are confident that we'll get there. Now, in terms of number of employees, we started off with two in 2018. And the numbers were up and down, up and down. But we now have two offices, one in Lilongwe, which is the capital city of Malawi. And we've just opened another office in Blanta, which is the business district of Malawi in June. In both offices combined, we have a total of 18 members of staff. And we project that those numbers will also grow. I'm anticipating a maximum of 25, if not 30, by the end of this year. In terms of number of agents on the ground, we have recently recruited some agents um, a few days ago, which should have brought our total number of agents to about uh, 180 these are predominantly based in the central region of Malawi and now moving down south, which are the different regions that we want to target for now. And related to the agents, when your agents start working for you, do they then travel to one of your head offices for training or is it a more distributed model? Good question. So we want them to understand the technology. Recruitment actually happens at rural level. We've got a program where we've got individuals, their basic job is just to be scouts. They're what we call agent scouts, people who go around in different districts that we want to target or different regions that we want to target. And their job is to basically find potential agents who then apply. We have an application process as well. The same way how somebody applies for a job, we want the agent to apply for the job as well. It's not going to be an instant opportunity just because you're based somewhere that we want to target, we have actual processes. And during the process, there are some agents that fall through the actual timeline of agent recruitment. And those who make it are given probation for one month. And training is done. If it's in the south, it will be done in Blanta. If it's in the central region, it will be done in our Lilongwe office, where we basically explain to them our different agent rules. Topics that are covered are the agent rules, customer care rules, how the technology works for the different products that we promote, and giving them an understanding of what their requirements are. Each agent has a minimum target. So just because you're an agent today doesn't mean you will be an agent with us tomorrow. You must meet your monthly minimum sales targets. And this is something that we must grill into each and every agent before they sign up. And it's only after that point... 
once they've gone through the different stages and come to the office for training, when they decide if they want to join, if not, they have the right to decide not to. We don't force anybody to go down that route either. So those are the processes that we've got in place. And you've mentioned that your CEO is based in South Africa. And you mentioned that there's an interesting discussion to be had about why you chose Malawi or why Malawi was the initial point of expansion. Can you tell us about that process, that decision-making? And it looks like you're also looking to expand into Uganda as well. I think the biggest driving point here would be the extreme lack of electricity in the country. Right. Unfortunately, as much as that sounds very negative, it is our biggest driving force. And looking at the energy situation in Malawi, even at a political level, there is no grand master plan of improving access to electricity because we are dependent on hydroelectricity, which is it struggles quite a lot. Only because our population is quite big. We've got about 18 million people in Malawi. 90% of them are living in rural areas. The same 90% who do not have access to electricity. And Malawi is an agricultural country, which then means the 18 million people out there, the 4 million households, rely on farming predominantly as their source of income. Now, to make sure that you're farming enough to feed 18 million people, you need land. And uh, a lot of trees are being cut down for farming purposes. And when those trees are being cut down and it's raining, a lot of water with silt is running straight into our lake. The lake is the driving point for our source of electricity. So from the lake, that water rushes down the river and it disrupts the turbines. Malawi spends a lot of money on a daily basis cleaning the turbines. And as a result, our electricity situation will not improve unless deforestation is addressed. So until then, there will not be a lot of focus on trying to electrify rural areas because it's also quite expensive. Sending an, an electric cable from the main transformer to a specific household, the distances are quite far and it is quite expensive. So I don't think it's in the agenda right now for the government to make a hard decision to go about electrifying rural households. So we are taking advantage of that, but at the same time offering the same households who are spending billions on battery torches and batteries themselves and pushing that money into something that is cleaner and they're using renewable energy as their primary source of energy. Perfect. And we'd love to speak more about, I think, a topic that's pretty close to your heart and that you're very interested in, which is women in energy and gender diversity and the gender impact of energy access within the sector. There's a number of reports you can read and information that's available, but I think gender equality and gender focus has really become important for a lot of people working in the energy access sector and not just the impact on the potential customers, the existing customers, the peripheral beneficiaries of, of energy access, but then also for employees within the companies and providing a means for improving the incomes for people who are part of the energy sector. It's an incredibly broad topic, but could you perhaps start by telling us a bit about what you've seen, what you've noticed with regards to gender equality and energy access, and what are your particular areas of, of passion? Great. Good question. My entry into the energy sector was not one that I'd planned for. And even at that time, when I entered into the, the, the sector, I could see that there was a big disparity in terms of number of women who were interested in the sector and number of women who are actively involved in the sector. The only time we talked about energy at that specific point was in relation to cooking. So that's why when I talk about stoves, that is where a lot of people or a lot of women are involved in because cooking is predominantly done by the woman in the house. When we talk of energy and gender in African context, we are just specifically focusing on the cookstove side. And when we decided to go into the solar space in 2016, I can assure you I was very adamant. I actually did not want to do solar. And I thought, well, I don't see how solar is going to be attractive for me to market. And I was pushed by my then advisor who's told me, look, if you can sell a cook stove to the rural households in Malawi, you can sell solar. And I said, well, that is my background. I'm a marketer. I should be able to market anything. I'm curious, why were you against solar? I was against solar because 
I did not understand the technology. So I'm a woman, I can understand cooking, so I can sell cooking anytime. And going into solar, I felt like now I'm talking about lighting. What am I going? I don't know anything about lighting. Right. I, I literally had to invest in researching on, on solar. Even the word Pico PV to me, I, I, I just did not understand what that meant. Yeah, it's a lot of jargon. Yeah, it is. It was my first time to be exposed to such words and to the actual technology itself. And also trying to appreciate the difference between all the solar products that I've seen, because what I knew at that point was, you know, the big solar panels that you find on rooftops. And the other option was the solar water heaters. That was as far as it went for me in terms of solar. So just researching on it made me realize, okay, there is quite a lot of room for different households or, you know, different people to appreciate what solar can do for them. Because only when I understood what uh, Pico PV was is when I realized, okay, there's a big, big opportunity here. And when I started looking at what other countries were doing in neighboring Malawi, I said, well, if people are able to do this in, in Tanzania, there is no reason why we can't do it. And that's also the first time I got exposed to the fact that we have quite a large number of households without access to electricity. I knew about access to electricity from the cooking perspective, but I didn't appreciate what the alternatives were for the lighting section. I understood for the cooking section was a three stone fire, which is very, very inefficient. And when I looked at it from the lighting side, I mean, I, I used to use torches back then. I actually don't own a torch anymore. I have solar, little solar lamps that I walk around with right now. But aside from that, I also used to use candles and indeed I know the risks of using candles right now. There's quite a lot of houses that would burn down and so forth. Uh, and that's when I realized, okay, lighting also affects women. I think that's the only time I appreciated it. When I realized that lighting does affect women. Lighting affects women in Malawi in ways that if I described would make you really get disheartened. Can you tell us about some of those aspects that you were looking to combat when you say we would be disheartened to hear about what the impact is of lighting on women? What is the impact of not having a clean and reliable source of lighting for women in particularly rural communities that you've seen in Malawi? Is it around safety and, and security and so on? I think it, it, it's cross-cutting. So whether it's health, for example, in Malawi, if, you, if you're a woman going to give birth in rural uh, health centers, one of the things that you're asked to bring with you is a candle because there is no electricity in the health centers. And if you don't come with your candle, you will not be assisted by a midwife. Those are unfortunately the dire facts that are on the ground right now. And above and beyond that, the women are the ones who are the guardians or the caretakers of the sick, whether it's at home or in hospital. You cannot take care of somebody who's sick in the dark. You must have access to some form of lighting. So again, the default is always a candle or a torch. Above and beyond that, when we look at education, it's majority the women who sit at home with their children, supporting them. And we find a lot of children unable to study. And this impacts the girl child a lot more than it does for the boys because they, they go through a lot more challenges. For example, just going to school is an issue altogether. Now, add on top of that, the fact that they cannot study at night because they have no access to some form of lighting that they could use. So they have already touched on health, I've touched on education. I could go again into just social security, just households in rural Malawi don't have their toilets indoors. If you want to use a toilet, you must go outside. And if you're going to use the toilet outside at night, you must have some form of lighting. Uh, so for security, for the girl, child, or just the, the woman in a household, these are things that we, we tend to ignore and assume that everything is normal, but it's not. These are the things that they touched me. And I have experienced it, of course, when I go to visit my relatives and in the village. But I never thought much about it because I'm just there for maybe a day or two. And I think, well, I, I don't really need it. Or I've got my smartphone that has got a, a little torch. So I don't really look at it from the bigger perspective. But that is the reality on the ground. Absolutely. And I think one area that Yellow seems to be doing quite a lot of work in or trying to push for development on is around women with regards to employees and, and having women agents and providing them with potential sources of income in the future. 
So can you tell us more about the work you've done there and what's really inspired your work in that sector? Yes. So on the employee side, I mean, it's, it's quite exciting to see that out of the, all the, the employees that we've got right now, majority of them, believe it or not, are women. I don't know if that was on default, but our process of application is the same as the agents where we do everything online, uh, where they do an aptitude test and uh, predominantly it's women who pass at much, much higher rates than um, men. They end up getting themselves into an industry that they've never been involved in, but so far so good. Uh, the ladies are doing a great job in managing logistics, managing warehousing, training of the agents, and you name it, they're able to do it. In terms of the agents themselves, when we started in 2018, we only had one female agent and she stayed the only female agent for quite some time. And it's around that time when I was, you know, we were picking our brain and trying to understand we've got all these agents out there out of 20, only one was a female. And we were wondering what's going on? How comes female people are not getting into the, the, the funnel, application funnel? At that point, we asked the, the only agent at that time, what made her join the company or how did she hear about the company and decided to join? And she said, well, the only reason she joined is the fact that her husband was kind enough to share his smartphone with her. So because we are a digital company, everything is done using a smartphone, specifically for the agents in the field. So she was able to get access to the, the cell phone, something that, again, that we take advantage of the fact that everybody has a cell phone, but not everybody has a smartphone. Now, the smartphone is the tool for us to do business. And without it, you cannot join our agent network. So when she told us this, we sat back and thought, okay, maybe this is the challenge. Maybe women don't have access to cell phone, or maybe there's something more to it than meets the eye. And when we dug a little bit deeper, we realized, yes, so the, the other few women who eventually joined, they also mentioned the same thing. They were lucky to have access to a smartphone and they saw a flyer that was moving through social media and decided to join up. And it's at that point where I decided, well, we need to really make a big investment in gender equality, but not just gender equality, but digital awareness. Digital literacy is something that is, it's not a, a focus area in education in Malawi anyway, but it's something that everybody else across the world in the Western world has got access to. You're able to understand how to use a cell phone or above and beyond that. You can use a, a tablet or a laptop. You have access to an email address or Facebook. So you're basically in touch with the world at the palm of your hands or on your desktop and so forth. But not everybody in Malawi has got that luxury, so to speak. So we decided to honor our first lady agent. Her name is Kumbo. And we decided to launch what we would call Project Kumbo. And the mandate for this project is to empower approximately 400 women with access to digital literacy. And most importantly, a smartphone, which gives them the opportunity to apply and become one of our agents. And for those who don't manage to get through they will still be able to have access to all the information that is available at the palm of their hands just by having a smartphone. And that can make a big difference right now in this current world that we live in. Great. That sounds like a fantastic initiative. I think that's a really important perspective and to keep in mind with regards to how women can have access to technology and the equipment that they need to be able to unlock these opportunities, for example, mm -hmm. to become an agent. Are there other factors that you know, are really important with regards to women and their potential within the sector, be that social factors or cultural factors? What are the other barriers that you've seen get in the way for women? So, I mean, one of the things that I was really worried about for a very long time is uh, people accepting women climbing on top of roofs, believe it or not. Right. <laughs> Um, but I was really encouraged when I saw, you know, the, the different women who've applied so far. I think a, a female agent network is now approximately 30 or so. And from the onset of Project Kumbo, which was actually launched last month, we were supposed to have started with the process of uh, recruiting women in April. But because of COVID-19, we had to wait for a while and see how or what's happening on the ground before we could embark on different activities. But some of the women that we recruited for the Project Kumbo have already applied and some have gotten through. They've started their first two weeks of probation, and we hope that they do a very good job and become full-time agents at the end of the month. 
you know, culturally, we thought people might shy away from becoming an agent because they have to climb a roof. But you should see these ladies there, you know, they're like firecrackers. They get onto their ladder and they're up on the roof, putting up their panel. That's amazing. Taking selfies. Now that they've got a phone, they're taking selfies on the roof. <laughs> And, you know, I didn't think that we'd be creating uh, such an impact, but I'm proud. And, you know, just listening to the ladies' stories, some of them telling you, you know, we didn't know that these opportunities existed and you've come at the right time. Some of them were just getting on with life and not knowing that there's an opportunity for them to become a solar agent. They didn't think that that's a job for a woman, but just convincing them that, yes, they can be able to do it. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with climbing on the roof. Yeah, they were ready and they're up, up and about doing their thing and they love it. And that's what makes me the, the most excited. The fact that they love and enjoy doing what they're doing right now. Above and beyond that, I think they actually, they really understand how to relate with the customer. Uh, we've seen that most of our female agents understand and can be able to motivate people to become a, a customer. But even when they become a customer, when a customer has a challenge, maybe they can't make money and make a payment for that specific month. They can be able to rehabilitate them, explain to them on why they should make a payment, or they can they actually explain back to us and say, look, this is the situation with this particular customer. Please give him or her an, a chance. Let them have one more week before they make a payment. I will make sure I go back and follow up and uh, until the payment is done. So we said, okay, fine, let's go for it. Uh, we trust you. You are one of our agents. And you should see the messages that they get back from these customers. And they say, oh, thank you for trusting us. We were really going through a tough time, but uh, you really believed in us and you were there to support us. So they have this personal touch that they bring into the whole agent network, which we haven't necessarily seen from the male agents. And we want that. We, we, we want that. I mean, when, I'm not saying that some male agents don't do that. They do. But we can see even when they have to go out and repossess a unit, uh, we can see the sadness in them. They said, look, we've, we came and try, we're trying to make change in people's lives. And yet we've gone back and ruined someone's life. But unfortunately, that is business. And there's not much we can do, but we, we can feel their pain, so to speak. We can see it and it resonates. And what they want to do is to make sure that everybody that they, they sign up as their customer remains a customer up to the very end. Yeah, that's yeah. really interesting to hear about because we've certainly seen some reports that have shown that not only are women more reliable for making payments as customers, but statistically, they often make better payment collectors as well. And it's yes. great to, I guess, understand some of the dynamics behind why that might be the case and their compassion and understanding. Mm -hmm. It seems beneficial for customer relationships and building that customer trust as well. Exactly. I mean, they know the energy situation in a household. They, they, they already experience it as the, the primary users of energy in a household. So they can relate to the challenges that each and every person would go through. And I think that gives them that extra voice, so to speak, on behalf of the, the customer. Uh, they can be able to relate with them one on one and they can also come up with solutions together as a result. So it, it works. It's, it's like a win-win situation for the themselves and their customers. And I imagine for. A lot of them, it must be inspiring or at least seen as a positive sign that they have a woman founder and a successful role model that would probably encourage them, I imagine, to apply for that job. Is that what you've seen and heard? And is it, I guess, that typical role of having uh, women within a senior position within the company that has inspired a lot of them to apply for the job and to accept the role? Well, I don't speak for them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh so the funny thing is a lot of people before they, they knew me would think that I'm a man because my name in, in Malawi is both male and female. Oh, interesting. So the fact that whether it's Maya Conte Stewart or whether it's Maya Stewart, initially people think I am a man. Oh, wow. I can tell you this as an example where I once did an application for a USADF funding and it was only for women. And I mean, I applied. I am a woman after all. And I got feedback that, yes, my application was turned down. And then one year later, I met the CEO of uh, USADF at a function. We were at a function and I was tabling a, a group work session. And she then realized at that moment that I am the Maya Stewart that made that application. So she came and admitted that 
my proposal did get through, but it wasn't pushed through because of the assumption that I was a man. <laughs> wow. So that's fascinating. So right now I'm really trying to think, okay, so I need to make sure that I put misses in everything that I do. <laughs> Otherwise, oh my goodness. But um, yeah, in terms of the team, when they decide, once they've joined in and they figure out that I'm a, you know, I'm a lady and I think it does motivate them to see uh, not only just a, a lady, but a youth as well. Uh, I'm still considered youth, thank goodness, I think for another year and a half. Um, <laughs> until then, I shall maximize on my youth until I move on to the next level. But yeah, when they see a lady who's able to to manage a company, but above and beyond that, manage a team and uh, motivate a team as well, it encourages them to see that this could be them one day. And I'm not the one to say, you know, we want you to just be an employee for the rest of your life. We encourage them as well to pursue their own personal entrepreneurship dreams. I mean, I'm an entrepreneur and I own several companies and, and an NGO. So I want them to also think that way. They should not just think they should be employees for the rest of their lives. They really need to think outside the box. And if they've got a skill that they need to develop, I'm always ready to support them all the time. If they've got uh, some other form of support that they want to get, for example, access to educational tools and so forth, I'm always pushing that on their way. There's quite a lot of courses right now that are channeled specifically for women in energy. So I encourage them as well to apply, even though they think that, yes, we're working for a company that's in the solar sector, but really my background is just warehousing oil and logistics. Uh, I want them to feel that, you know, there is a lot more opportunities in the energy sector because it is going to be something that's growing. We will always need energy, whether we like it or not. Even if COVID-19 comes again as COVID-20, we will still need some form of lighting in the household, some form of cooking in the household, and energy will always be a number one priority in a household. It is a basic need. Absolutely. You're obviously successful as a business entrepreneur, having started your own companies and so on. Has it been more challenging than you expected? Are there any hurdles that you think you faced specifically because you were a woman within the society? I'm just curious if you could share some of your thoughts and experiences on that side, apart from often being mistaken for being a man. <laughs> so maybe, and um, um, believe it or not, but maybe that works to my advantage. Right, uh, absolutely. <laughs> Truth be told, uh, I haven't seen a lot of challenges in my few years of working. And that's predominantly because everything that I do, I don't put it, I don't work as though I'm working as a woman. I just work as a human being. I'm just there to do my best. And I think that also comes through whenever I meet different people and in different sectors, whether it's in Malawi or outside. Uh, I look at everything from the perspective of this is a human situation. I'm not here as a woman. I'm not here as a man. I'm here as a human being and I just want to get the job done. But I have seen, I have seen for sure that a lot of people get discouraged by being a woman in different sectors, whether it's in the finance sector, whether it is in the medical sector, there'll always be challenges where people feel that women cannot work as good as a man, but I don't want to dwell on that because truth be told, I have not specifically experienced it. So I would be speaking on behalf of other people. Well, that's great to hear that there haven't been any challenges or specific hurdles that you faced in your experience. You tell me, have, have you experienced challenges as a woman in the same industry, in the energy sector? Yeah, I think I've been pretty fortunate. And part of it is I think I'm also probably a bit used to it and a bit desensitized to, to it as well. But I studied chemistry and physics, so mm -hmm. had a very male-heavy classroom already. Mm -hmm. I certainly am conscious and aware of the fact that in many circumstances, I might be the only female in the room or one of very few women in the room. But I think I'm fortunate in that, especially in the US and the UK, where I've been working for the last few years. There's been a real concerted effort to try and both support women, but also raise a profile of women working in the energy sector. But I've unfortunately heard stories of other women who, especially I think in the oil and gas sector, who have mm. unfortunately faced a lot more discrimination and people have doubted their capabilities just because of the gender. Mm -hmm. No, totally. I mean, I've seen that. I have met quite a lot of uh, other ladies who, yeah, they would give me their you know experiences and for me, I guess I'm looking at it and I, I'm a bit taken aback. I didn't realize that this is to that extent, it can be really, really negative. I think on my side, 
the the most that I've seen really is what I was mentioning earlier, the different challenges for the girl child in Africa. And, and I don't say in Malawi only because this is something that stretches above and beyond Malawi, but where girls' education is not a primary concern for a household, they would rather educate boys in the household first before they educate the girl. We also have challenges of early child marriages uh, where girls as young as 10 years old are married off. And that's just the norm in a lot of cultures in Africa. Luckily, I think because of the culture that I was brought up in, and I'm coming from two different cultures, I don't have any relatives, or should I say, I don't have any sisters or cousin that have gone through that, you know, the process of not educating the child. So I would like to say that I've been fortunate that education was readily available for myself. I can't say where I would have been if I didn't have access to education. My parents made sure I went to co-ed schools throughout because they wanted me to be in a position where I can compete just head to head with my peers, my peers also being boys. I remember when I was a child, I was always encouraged and told there's no boy who's better than you. There's no girl who's better than you. You are who you are. You just have to be the best that you can be. And that was my biggest motivator. And I never thought for one second that a boy could beat me. Okay, maybe in running, but not in school. <laughs> yeah. In running and in football, yes. But when it came to education, I was really competitive. I was brought up in a very competitive household where, I don't know, I, I really have to ask my parents right now, but they always used to tell me they were at the top of the class, both my parents. So that also motivated me. I said, yeah, I also want to always be in the top of the class. And believe it or not, I studied chemistry and physics as well. In oh. <laughs> <laughs> And I wanted to be an actual scientist, believe it or not. Um, oh, I, I'm a love of maths. Maths is my baby, but my parents thought um, otherwise. They said, nope, you'll just go to business school. So here I am today. <laughs> That's so funny. So my mom has always wanted me to be an actual scientist. Really? <laughs> but I, yeah, she loves maths too and really just wanted me to be an actuary. I think she thought it was a yeah. very respectable, stable career and uses a lot of maths. So yes. she always pushed me in that direction. So we've got uh, some parallel opposing lives going on here. <laughs> I should have had your life, Gigi. <laughs> yeah, we should have switched. Oh, but you grew goodness. up in Malawi then, I assume? Uh, no, so I grew up in, in Kenya. I did my oh, primary... Yes, I did my primary and university, primary, secondary and university in Kenya. And only after that, when I finished uh, university is when I came back to Malawi. And that was around 2005. And believe it or not, I was jobless until 2008. I could not find a job. <laughs> because you were, I guess, a young graduate. and Not only a young graduate, but I was a young graduate from a country outside Malawi. Mm. So people tend to basically hire people who've gone through the education system in Malawi because it's easier for them to just merge into the lifestyle or the culture of the different businesses that are here. So me coming from an international setting was a bit intimidating. I've always dealt with intimidation in a way that it motivates me. So I just started doing little businesses as I waited for my first job and my first job is the one that I mentioned in 2008 was in the energy sector, something that I had never studied. But I mean, when you do business, you can be in any any sector in the world. So that was my first job ever. And following from that, this is where I am right now. But why did you decide to return to Malawi? Because it sounds like you've got family still here and still in Malawi, right? Yes. So for me at that time, East Africa was always and still is right now a bubbling economy. You know, there's a lot going on. Things are moving very, very fast. But I, I decided to move back to Malawi predominantly because there was a lot more opportunities here. During holidays, I would always be coming back to, to Malawi just to visit the family. And I would compare, you know, this is Malawi current situation versus what I see in Kenya. And there's a lot of gaps. I mean, even until today, there's a lot of gaps. And having a lot of gaps means there's a lot more opportunities. Whereby if I decided to stay in Kenya, I would have had to compete with a very big market of people who've just also graduated the same time as me. I mean, I was a class of about, I think we were about a thousand uh, graduates of business only. So can you imagine trying to give 1,000 plus students employment. Kenya, yes, has a better employment rate than Malawi, but as somebody doing business, you'd really have to differentiate yourself from everybody else who was in your class. 
And at that time, I thought it would be a wiser decision to come to a country that's a little bit quieter, so to speak, that how would definitely have more opportunities. And yeah, that's how I ended up here. And I'm still here. And it seems like it's going really well. So that seems like the right decision and fantastic to hear about. Exactly. We'd like to move into what we call our quickfire round, where we ask some fairly short, lighthearted, hopefully, questions to understand more about you and your background and the company as well. Yeah. One of the questions that I always like to ask our guests is, where did you get the company's name, Yellow Solar Power, from? Um, it was a, I think it was a toss-up. Uh <laughs> We were doing what we do best, which is chatting on WhatsApp and coming up with the, basically just name dropping different names. One of the names, I, well, I, if I pronounce it, you will not be able to understand it. It was a, it was a Malawian name. And I'm so grateful that we didn't use it because if we went to Uganda without the, with that name, I'm not sure if it would have been received the same way. Right. Um, but yeah, we had a lot of uh, options. But it was just, it was literally a WhatsApp session. Yeah, my colleague Mike is the one who came up with the option yellow. And that's when I said, yep, that's it. Let's not think further than this. No, it's nice. I like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I thought, you know, it's something that also, if you look at the color and you look at what we're trying to promote, which is lighting, they're synony synonymous somewhat. Whereas the other names, hey, they were embarrassing. So <laughs> I don't <know. laughs> It seems, you know, very positive, cheerful. Yeah, I like I like the name a lot. Yeah. Great. Yeah. And do you have any recommended books or resources, information, you know, films, whatever it might be that you recommend to our listeners and either related to the off-grid sector or not related to the off-grid sector? Oh, wow. That's a tough question. Related to the off-grid sector, if you have access to Netflix, you should go and watch The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind. It is a story about a Malawian boy, a true story about a young Malawian boy who went and designed a windmill to generate water in his village. At that time, there was a drought in Malawi for about a year. And he basically was just taking books from the library, trying to come up with the different ideas on how to create this uh, windmill. And he managed to do it on his own with support from his family. Of course, after a lot of negative support in, in the beginning, but when he did it, I mean, he he managed to to bring water into his village at a time where Malawi at that point, I think, was going through the worst drought it's it's had for, I think, the past 20 years. So if you've got a chance, please watch something about Malawi, learn something about Malawi. And yeah, The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind It's a very lovely, moving movie. It's in English. Uh, some parts are in the local dialect, but there is subtitles. That's great. I actually just started reading the book because I think there was a book initially. So I have that yes. on my phone to read. That's great. And do you have any advice for someone who's looking to get involved in the off-grid sector, either as an investor or an entrepreneur? A very good question. As an entrepreneur, the only advice I'd give is if you're coming into the off-grid sector, be ready to understand your market first. Don't bring products that you think customers will like or would love. Ask your customers, what is it that they don't have? And try and create or try and bring a product that will address that one challenge. I mean, the one thing that we always wanted to understand from our customer was, what is it that you would like to have right now that you don't have in your household? And of course, electricity they didn't have. But once they got exposed to electricity, the next thing that they were now asking us was, can you be able to give us other products? Can you be able to give us a fridge? Can you be able to give us a television set? And these are now technologies that we're really looking into investing in in the future, bearing in mind that we've already got the customer's data uh, and their history on how they're making payments. So we can be able to now make a plan and bring a product that is suitable or manageable, depending on that household's budget and satisfying their needs. Every household wants to be in a position that is as good as that person who's living in the city, who's got access to electricity 24-7, who've got fridges, you know, microwaves and so on and so forth. And I think by investing in the off-grid sector, we'll also address other challenges in the country. Um, the issue of migration from uh, rural areas into the cities, 
you know, which results in just excess number of people or unnecessary number of people in, in, in the urban centers when really where the money is, is in the rural areas where you've got access to land. You can till your land, you can make something out of it, and you can also live comfortably right there in the village. Whereas an investor, I think the advice I'd give is you need to understand the different markets, the different countries that you're investing in. A lot of investors that we've met, when we initially met them, they said, well, we can't invest in Malawi. You're already a poor country. How how are you going to make money in it? Don't invest in the country per se, but invest in the idea. If the idea is a moneymaker and you believe that the team that is running the show can also deliver there should be no room for a worry, so to speak. You should be able to jump on board. Don't wait until the 11th hour, so to speak, for you to say, oh, can we now invest right now? By then it might be too late. So I don't want to say putting your money in blindly, but investigate on your own and do your due diligence, get confidence that the, the team on the ground can be able to deliver and then make that investment. I'm saying this because we've gone through investments that fell through. And I think that's solely because the different investors were not confident whether it was with the country or with our model, because it was different from what everybody else was doing. We don't have to do what everybody else is doing. You can be able to have your own idea. And if you're happy with your idea, don't change it to make sure it fits what the investor wants. Continue with your own idea and find an investor who's ready to invest in your idea. I think that's my advice, again, back to the entrepreneur in this particular case when it comes to investment. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And as someone who's working in the investment sector as well, I certainly see, I think sometimes it's difficult because the role of an investor is to try and minimize the risk and to invest in things you already understand. But yeah, absolutely. Huge amounts of need, I think, still in those sectors and in the countries too. Precisely. Perfect. And our second last question, what do you do when you're not working? <laughs> Eugene, I'm always working. <laughs> Even when I don't want to work, I just find myself still working. thinking about it. <laughs> yes. uh, okay, so my business partner, or should I say my life partner is my husband. And we're constantly talking about work, whether we want to work or we don't want to work. But we do quite a lot of travel. My my favorite pastime is traveling, whether it's uh, traveling internationally. Just traveling gives you exposure and gives you bright ideas as well. Where are your favorite countries? We love Amsterdam, that Holland. I mean, that's our default. It's it's the best party place ever. So <laughs> we're constantly always planning our. If we're doing any world travel, we're always planning about going via Amsterdam or going to a place and then finishing it off in Amsterdam and then coming back home. But yeah, it's a very multicultural city and it's one that resonates with, you know, the different activities that we like to do. So we are foodies. We love eating. We love trying different types of food. We love trying different types of drinks as well. So we're constantly going and trying different craft beer. It's yeah, one of our favorite pastimes. Perfect. And so our final question, what are your predictions for the off-grid solar sector in Malawi or more broadly within sub-Saharan Africa for the next five years? Wow, that's a big question. I know for a fact right now, Malawi is going to have a lot more investment from different development agencies in the off-grid sector, specifically because, like I mentioned earlier, we don't have access to electricity for the majority uh, so that needs to be addressed. And the only way to address it quickly is through off-grid electricity. So we are going to see a big influx, I believe, of different people coming into the market, whether it's uh, guys who are already in Malawi or new players coming into Malawi. And the playing field is so enormous. I mean, it's not something that people should be worried about. And the same goes also for most of Sadak region. So countries like Mozambique or Zambia, I would like to mention Zimbabwe as well. There's a lot of opportunities to invest in off-grid electricity there. In the East African space, I mean, we are hearing right now that uh, a country like Kenya is coming close to us almost fully electrification. They've also just recently introduced uh, VAT on solar products. So it might be dissatisfying for different investors, but there's still a lot of opportunities in Uganda and Tanzania, Rwanda as well. And that's one of the reasons why we decided to also go to, to Uganda as the next country of entry for, for yellow. 
we hope that that will be also just a big opportunity as as it has been here in Malawi. Uh, the country profile is pretty similar to Malawi in terms of population density. It's almost one-to-one. So we feel that our agents in, in Uganda will also have an equal playing ground or playing field as our agents here in Malawi. In terms of other countries in the Western Africa, there's, again, a lot of opportunities there. Big, big, big population. I would love to one day end up having yellow in, in Nigeria, but who knows? We'll see. Time will tell. Let's see how, how, how far we go in the next three years alone, and then we take it from there. Sounds good. We look forward to the day when yellow enters the Nigerian market. Thank you so much, Maya. It's been a fantastic conversation. Thanks for joining us on Distributing Soda. Thank you too, Eugene. It was a pleasure chatting with you over the last few hours. And let's hope we can do this again in three years' time. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. That was our conversation with Maya Stewart from Yellow Solar Power. If you have any questions or comments, please visit us on our website at www.distributingsolar.com. We have notes from our podcast, useful sources and contact details available. Thanks for listening and join us next time when we'll be speaking with Brave Mahoney from Sunny Money and SolarAid, also discussing the challenges and opportunity of solar power in Malawi.